Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Eric Koo, co-founder of Loop This, 10 Past 10, and Los Angeles Watchworks. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. Hi, Rob. Hey, how you doing? You sound good. Thank you. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I had a a lovely weekend. I drank a lot of lovely wine that I bought on a recent trip to Valle de Guadalupe. Have you ever heard of Valle de Guadalupe? No, I've not. It's in Mexico and I drove there and it was so much fun to drive to Mexico, which I used to do all the time and I haven't done for a while, I guess clearly since the pandemic, but even for years I hadn't gone. They have beautiful wine down there. You kind of, I think a lot of people would be surprised to figure that out because it doesn't strike you as a winemaking region, but it's really just south of the border in Baja. And we kind of drank all of it now. There's nothing left and you can't really get a lot of it in in California. I was going to ask you for some. I know. I wish I had some. We were very greedy. That was my recent weekend. How about you? Nothing, nothing that cool. I don't know. Nothing. The one thing that wasn't very cool about my trip to Mexico was the four hours I spent at border traffic heading home. Yeah, I can imagine that was crazy. It didn't have to be that way. And if anyone listening is ever planning a trip through Baja and is driving, please talk to me so I can tell you how not to spend four hours at the San Ysidro border. That's all I'll say, but it definitely didn't have to be that way. And it was my own dang fault. So there we go. Well, we, I guess we can cut to the chase unless Rob, anything is pressing and wonderful. No, I, no, all the wine is gone. So there's nothing to talk about, right? So nothing else. Yes, very sad over here. We have a really interesting guest that I've interviewed on a number of occasions. And I'm always conclude the interview, always thinking what a great quote. He's so good. He's so quotable. So I thought what better forum to have him on than our podcast. I, I don't think he thinks it was probably as someone who delivers bon mots. But anyway, his name is Eric Koo. He is a vintage Rolex dealer, very, very well known to the high-end watch community, particularly Rolex lovers. He's co-founder of Loop This, a year-old online auction platform that's done very well and made sort of waves in the auction world. Also founder of 10 Past 10, a vintage Rolex site and Los Angeles Watchworks. So he's got his hands in a number of different businesses, which I think he'll tell us about. And often he's been labeled a super dealer by Hoding I think that tagline follows him around quite a bit. Based in Berkeley, California. And welcome, Eric. It's so nice to have you. Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're good. We're good. It's, I don't think we've ever had a guest from Berkeley, have we, Rob? Have we had anyone from Northern California? Uh, Alan Revere was, was somewhere. Oh, right. He was in He's San Francisco. Close. So that's, that's yes. pretty close. And he had a similar vibe, actually. Yeah. And Eric, I forget. Are you from... You went to college at Berkeley, but are you from Berkeley, too? No, I actually grew up in uh, suburban Washington. Washington, D.C. I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, and uh, came out here for college and uh, never left. Nice. Well, so tell us, from what I understand, you got into watches while you were at Berkeley. What was the draw? Yeah, I mean, I've loved watches since I was a little kid. I used to collect all these catalogs from the various brands. National Geographic was my favorite magazine growing up, and there was always a Rolex advertisement, I think, in the uh, last page of that magazine. And I don't know if it was uh, their deaf marketing or whatever, but it just really got me interested in mechanical watches and especially like the history behind them. 
And in Berkeley, I mean, I would say Berkeley has a certain image of being very flower, childish, hippie-ish. Was there a lot of people there interested in watches? You know, I think my interest in watches, unfortunately, didn't really have much overlap with uh, with my actual campus experience at Berkeley. Didn't know anybody at school that was interested in watches. It was kind of compartmentalized at that time. My origin story of actually owning some of these watches was, uh, you know, I'd come into some money playing with the stock market when I was in college. And that allowed me to kind of buy my first few nice watches. And, uh, you know, like they say, easy come, easy go. Uh, I lost a fortune in the stock market shortly after and ended up selling everything that I had at the time. So, you know, I learned uh, buying watches. I learned enjoying them and unfortunately selling them as well. Was it exciting when you got your first one? Your first, I mean, how much was it? And what was it? I mean, as a watch nerd, you can break this down into like multiple firsts, right? So my first quote unquote, like nice watch was a uh, Omega Speedmaster automatic. And um, I guess nice is relative or whatever. But I remember at the time, it costing me $999. And I always thought that $1,000 was like the benchmark for like a really nice, like a luxury watch. And uh, that was the first one that I thought of at the time. It was an automatic one. It had a clear display back. I don't remember which model specifically, but that was my first quote unquote nice, nice watch. And then the other, like the first vintage watch that I got was a um, a Rolex Red Submariner. And I bought that at a watch show in Columbus, Ohio. It was an NAWCC show. And uh, at the time, my girlfriend was going to college at Oberlin. And I remember going out to see her and then driving out to this watch show in Columbus to... Uh, look at watches and ultimately that's the first one that I bought there. And were you drawn to vintage? Was that just on a lark or had you already decided that you were going to be a vintage guy and not a modern watch guy? I mean, maybe those distinctions weren't as clear as they are today, but. I mean, they weren't as clear, but one of the fascinations that I had with Rolex was like the history that was tied to the brand from the thirties on. Rolex somehow had always been tied to feats of human ingenuity, if you will. Exploration, climbing Mount Everest, going down the Mariana Trench, all these type of things were all tied to the brand. And that was one of the things that got me really interested in it, you know? And so, but you were buying and selling, was this the late nineties, by the way? Like when was this that you were first starting? This is, this is late nineties. I went to college in 97. So I think this is probably 99, 2000-ish. I can tell you actually my windfall stock gain was when eBay IPO'd. The stock came out, I remember, I want to say $50 a share. And um, it went up very quickly to $300 a share. And I made like a fortune on this because part of going to college is uh, learning fiscal responsibility. So (laughs) my parents gave me like a year's worth of tuition and room and board and allowance up front. It was around $30,000. And then I put all of the money into eBay and then it went up to $300. So I'd made a small fortune at the time. And um, I started buying a couple watches. I put a deposit down for a brand new Porsche 911. And um, by the time the car arrived, though, unfortunately, I lost all of my money and I never picked up that car. Interesting uh, fiscal responsibility. I'm not sure you exactly sure worked so well, but I tried to hold out for as long as I can about asking my parents for more money. You know, my dad was kind of 
he, he laughed. He was pissed kind of, but then laughed about it too. And then, you know, the general takeaway was, you know, it's better you learn about this now than later on in life, you know? So. That's very generous of your parents, A, to trust you and B, to not yeah. ream you, I guess. Uh, but, but, but mind you, this windfall, the money that I made and the money that I lost, this all happened, I would say, within a 90-day period of time. It was a very short period of time. Oh, the highs and the lows. My goodness. Well, these were obviously early days for all kinds of things. Early days for the watch market, early days for eBay, early days for the internet. What was the watch market like then? Where were people buying and selling? What were prices like compared to today, which is probably a, yeah. a very unfair comparison? But Yeah. So at that time, you know, this is the early days of the internet in general, but, you know, also early days of like internet watch collecting. Um, speaking to some of my colleagues who are older than myself, who had been involved in this like pre-internet, they used to fax pictures of watches to each other. And uh, early days, I remember a uh, old timer, a dealer named Don Breyer, who was one of the early watch dealers on the internet. Um, I remember the website Time Zone, which is still around. You know, there was a pretty active scene, I'd say from the get-go. And, you know, me coming in at that time, not knowing much about watches, I wanted to absorb and consume as much knowledge as I could about watches, talking on different forums on the internet with other collectors, and also looking at websites, you know, like very early uh, websites from, you know, there was this thing called GeoCities that was like a website host back in the day, and looking at all these like very amateur websites where people were very generous and sharing the knowledge that they had about watches. You weren't really buying online though, right? Or selling online? online you were just connecting with people online and then doing these transactions yeah i mean the 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 commercial part of it for me was kind of at these uh trade shows the one that was more focused on collectors and not dealers was the uh, nawcc that's the national association of watch and clock collectors and they would have for example a show in pasadena twice a year that i would go down to and then they would have these regional shows you know like the one that i went to in columbus ohio and you know i've gone to my share of those shows and and kind of like walking around, um, meeting people and trading and buying and selling amongst them. God. And so when when did you come to, I guess, found all your very and tell us about your various businesses now, because I do think you do have your hands in quite a lot. What are your main focuses these days? Okay, so in 2005, maybe a little bit early, 2004 or 2005, I started this website called 10 Past 10. And 10 Past 10 is a site that I started that specifically focused on selling vintage Rolex and predominantly like vintage sport Rolex watches that were like the really popular thing at that time. And they still are. Um, it's one of the segments that's most heavily collected. And, you know, it was uh, focusing on Submariners, GMTs, things of that nature. That was like the first thing that I really collected in terms of uh, vintage watches. And uh, that started as a part-time business. Then, um, you know, one day when I was sitting at my office doing my last day job, so to speak, the FedEx man came in and brought 10 FedEx boxes into my office. And I had this like moment of clarity that was kind of like, what the heck am I still doing here? And I'd much rather just be buying and selling watches all day. So I went into my boss's office at the time and gave notice right away and then rented an office and kind of never looked back. It's still running. It's been going on for, you know, whatever, almost 20 years right now. Mm -hmm. And then um, after that, 
about uh, six years ago, I was able to partner up with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Bo Gorey, and we started Los Angeles Watchworks, which is a repair and restoration business based out of uh, Pasadena, California. And, uh, you know, we specialize in the restoration and repair of fine Swiss watches, namely vintage Rolexes. And um, we're quite well known for our um, cosmetic work on watches, um, keeping and preserving that kind of original look and feel while um, catering specifically to kind of like uh, the whims and desires of like collectors, you know, a collector looks for different things when a watch is being serviced as opposed to just a consumer. One of the issues I've heard regarding watch repair is every now and then people bring in counterfeits and yes. it's not clear how to handle it. And First, you have to determine for sure it's a counterfeit. How do you handle that? I mean, so there is a uh, counterfeit is not, it's not like a black or white thing. It's usually a shade of gray. And, um, you know, with high grade kind of like vintage watches specifically, you know, you're looking at watches that might ostensibly be original, but the dial has been restored. The dial has been reprinted. The hands are not genuine. There's certain components that are not genuine, but overall the watch is original, you know? So um, you're dealing with like, very specific minutiae details when it comes to like authenticity. I don't particularly think there's anything that is so good that it fools 99.9% of the people, but there certainly are things that fool 90% of the people. Is that problem getting better or worse? I mean, do you find that that's getting harder to distinguish anything that's inauthentic or not genuine? I mean, so again, like dealing specifically, let's say with vintage watches, I think it's pretty difficult to make something really, really good. It could be like 80 to 90 90% good, but you can't get really close to like 100% or something like that. Whereas with new watches, a factory produced new watch, like let's say a Rolex, um, at the end of the day, it's industrially produced. You know, you see a lot of times very good fake new watches that uh, you kind of need to take the case back off, look at the movement and kind of hold in your hands before you can assess if it's real or not. So those are getting much better. You know, there's a whole cottage industry of grifters out there trying to take advantage of over-the-counter buyers, pawn shops jewelry stores, you know, uh, selling basically very high quality replica new Rolexes, for example, that people are not sophisticated enough to uh, determine that they're, you know, not original. Can you tell just by looking at a watch if it's industrially produced or hand produced? I mean, uh, yes and no. So first off, I'd like to say that like industrially produced is not necessarily like a bad term. An industrialized brand such as uh, Rolex or, you know, Omega, or any of these type of things. You know, their marketing and PR certainly mentions a lot about handmade this, that, but really these, in my eyes, are kind of like industrially produced watches. They, again, the fakes are very convincing, but there's certainly details that give them away. You know, if you look at them close enough, you can still tell the difference. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. One of the things we often hear is that the brands have kind of an ambivalent relationship with the secondhand market. I mean, obviously, it increases interest in their product and companies like Richemont have gotten into it. But have you ever like heard from them or do you, you know, see one at a show? Have you ever gotten feedback uh, whether they like what you're doing or don't like what you're doing? Or The pre-owned market is, you know, uh, it's something that typically the brands have thumbed their noses at. 
But I feel like there's an increasing embracing of that pre-owned market by the brands. For example, you guys probably know Richemont bought a few years ago Watchfinder, which is this kind of like pre-owned watch business uh, on the internet. And they've slowly integrated that into their dealer network. So if you go to a Vacheron boutique, for example, in New York, right, they will look at trade-in watches and uh, you know give you credit towards a purchase of a new watch because they have this network supporting them behind the scenes right now. You know, Rolex has kind of talked about and haven't implemented it yet, but They've also been talking with their dealers about the secondary market and how to handle that. It's an interesting thing because with new watches, the brands basically, there's like a keystone markup, right? And uh, with pre-owned watches, because these are not coming straight from like a manufacturer, they're coming from the secondary market. The margins are much thinner, you know? So for dealers dealing in these things, again, it's also like a uh, blessing and a curse type thing where, yeah, they deal with them. But on the other hand, the margins are just much slimmer than when they're selling a new watch. The reason that I feel like this business has become more interesting, though, is the lack of availability of some new watches. I mean, how many stories have we heard about walking into a Rolex dealer and either having only display models or nothing at all on the on the shelves, you know? So I feel that by having pre-owned watches available there, it kind of um, gives them something to sell, I guess, as opposed to nothing. One of the things I'm, I've been struggling to get my arms around is really the relationship between these two markets. Clearly, We've seen a big relationship in what you just said. There's nothing available in the primary channel authorized. And so people are flooding the secondary market with demand and clearly prices rose to these extreme heights. And now we're seeing those prices on the secondary market come down for these hyped watches, you know, the Daytonas and the Nautilus from Patek Philippe and the Royal Oak. And you and I had spoken about that just earlier this summer. Is that then, do you see demand cooling in the primary market too as a result or are is there a direct sort of link between those two now? Or is it that dealers in the primary market, authorized dealers are kind of sighing with relief because they don't have these speculative buyers coming in looking to flip? I would say that the primary interest has definitely not diminished. In the case of like a Nautilus and a stainless steel Daytona, for example, the Delta is just tremendous. I mean, I'm pretty sure most authorized dealers would agree. Like if they had 20X of them right now, they could still sell every single one and still have a waiting list. Um, these watches are just like artificially underpriced almost. Even now, like let's say things have quote unquote settled down, a stainless steel Daytona is still worth over $30,000, whereas the retail price is $14,000. And, you know, from when you got into this market in a big way in the early 2000s to today, what do you think are the biggest factors that have driven this kind of growth? I mean, is it social media? Is it distribution changing, you know, and stricter distribution? Like, how would you sort of quantify or qualify this growth? It's a bit of everything, uh, in my opinion. The brands have certainly done a lot more to kind of control the distribution. A lot of them are kind of going to that company-owned boutique model. I think most of them seem to be. And, um, you know, they have less and less like third-party partners. So that's affected the uh, supply. It was an open, I don't even want to say open secret, but it was general knowledge. Like in those days, I feel like when you went to a jewelry store, you would negotiate the price on everything, you know? Certain brands, you could get 20, 30% off right off the bat. And then some brands, it was more like five or 10% or no tax or something like that, but it was always a component to try to kind of like negotiate a price. Whereas now even brands that 
were known for being available for fairly generous discounts. Now it's kind of like, this is the price, you know? People don't go to a brand-owned boutique and expect to negotiate a price, you know? You don't go to Omega to get a discount on a Speedmaster, just like you don't go to a Rolex boutique to expect a discount on a Rolex, you know? This is all like new developments, in my opinion. And then on the consumer side, I mean, look, internet, social media, even mainstream press, watch collecting and specifically vintage watch collecting was a really niche kind of like a nerdy thing but over time you know the fashion world has embraced like uh vintage things and i think that's made a big difference too you know it's not just kind of like you know nerdy watch collectors that are into vintage antique watches now it's become like a cool thing you know magazines like uh, gq esquire you know they all have watch writers and they write about vintage watches all the time you know and then this has put these type of things front and center for many people. Mm, such a different marketplace than it was just even 10 years ago. Pretty I mean, it's pretty funny that like, I don't know if it was you, Victoria, that wrote this or, you know, one of your colleagues or whatever, but, you know, the fact that the New York Times and all these other mainstream newspapers and publications have written articles about the Nautilus interviewing Thierry Stir, you know, all these things. It's quite interesting. It's fascinating, you know? I mean, this stuff really has become very mainstream. Yeah, well, and it's certainly helped my own very personal bottom line because luckily there are plenty of outlets for these kinds of stories now, you're right. You've really seized a lot of the opportunities here and I want to get to loop this because that's pretty new and certainly does speak to changing dynamics in the watch auction space. Tell us about the company, why you founded it, and what your some of your biggest successes have been over the past year so loop this is a uh, online auction company we specialize in auctioning watches we typically run them like seven day auctions at no reserve and it came out of discussions that i had with a very good friend of mine who's now my co-founder and partner in this business uh, justin gruber and basically he and i actively participate in the watch auction market both as buyers and sellers we do this quite frequently and because we're so familiar with this uh, model, you know, there's always things that we like and don't like about it. You know, we like that as a consigner, sometimes if you have something really interesting, you could get a very high price from it because there's a few buyers that are really excited about it. We like that sometimes you can find a steal at an auction, you know, there's deals to be had both as buyers and sellers. Um, But, you know, some things we didn't like we thought that the fee structure associated with traditional auction was very high. At a minimum, we're talking about 26%. Sometimes it can be even higher in the 30s. And that's a lot. That's a big slice of the pie to give away. We also didn't like certain things like uh, payment structure, how long it took to get a watch listed and paid. And the fact that the auction calendar is you know, very predictable. You have spring and fall auctions. And a lot of the time in between the big sales, you're kind of left like twiddling your thumbs or um, you're missing out on some that stuff. So we created a platform that we thought addressed many of these issues that we had with traditional auctions. We don't necessarily think that we will uh, take over from that business model because you know there's something exciting about being in an auction room and either participating or watching people duke it out and buy like a five, ten million, or even million dollar, five hundred thousand dollar watch. There's some kind of excitement there that is an intangible thing about live in-person auctions. But you know we try to cater to a wider audience and um, have things for sale every day. I mean, obviously you're not the only secondhand watch site out there. There's quite a bit of them right now. Is it 
become a very competitive space? And how do you see that? It is a very competitive space, but there's different business models, right? There's the marketplace model like Chrono24, where uh, sellers can list their products at whatever prices they want. It's like eBay, you know, it's like a, the world's marketplace, I think they call it, where you can go to a site and look for all these things. Our approach is instead of like throwing a wide net and casting it out, we have like kind of a targeted approach. We curate a collection of watches that we offer for sale to our users at auction styles. Uh, format. The price is not fixed. And basically the watches sell for whatever the market will bear. Up until now, we're closing in on about 4,500 registered users on the site. So I think that represents like a pretty large group of users that have gone as far as creating accounts on our website to bid on the watches that we have on offer. And you, you mentioned, you use the term nerdy a lot. Is the kind of typical watch collector a nerdy type or is he a rich person or a rich nerd? Or When I use the term nerdy, I think more like detail-oriented collectors, like specific about little, you know, minutia about these type of watches. Those people still exist, certainly. There are certainly a lot of rich people collectors that have large budgets and, um, you know, can buy many things at a time or many expensive things at a time. But, you know, one really great thing about watch collecting that I find is, uh, this is also a recent phenomenon, is that there's so many great brands at all sorts of different price points, you know? There's been kind of like a renaissance of what people call like micro brands, right? Watch brands that are maybe in that 800, 500 to $1,000 range or the 1,000 to $2,000 range that traditionally is, you know, it's certainly more affordable than, you know, like Rolex or other brands starting at five to 10,000. But, you know, there's something for everybody to collect these days. That's why I think this hobby continues to grow, you know, leaps and bounds year over year. You mentioned, I'd love to hear kind of a little hit list of brands that you think maybe haven't gotten their due yet, whether they're micro brands or or some of the more established or at least historic names, is there anybody that you think is like a sleeper hit that waiting to sort of soar? I mean, I think like, uh, let me pull out my crystal ball here first. <laughs> Please, but, do. Um, Please do. Yeah, you know, the thing that I'd say is that um, I know, for example, when I started collecting watches, I was collecting out of like personal interest, not necessarily like financial gain, let's say, right? So now because watches have gotten quite expensive, a lot of people are collecting because they see like part of a, I don't know, a portfolio of investments or they see things going up rapidly in value. So I think getting back to my point about auctions and the market being in equilibrium, I feel like the market is pretty smart in detecting things that are undervalued or overvalued and adjusting accordingly. So I couldn't pick out watches that I would really feel are undervalued, but there are, you know, certain brands or types of watches that I think are underappreciated, you know, which could be, you know, these watches at a more affordable price point, you know, like $1,000 watches, $2,000 watches, you know, micro brands, like there's one called uh, Corona, which is a Japanese brand, and they release these kind of watches off their website in like a flash sale almost, you know, so you have to like fight to get them at the beginning but you know they release them at very affordable prices and in quantities large enough to satisfy like a you know a large group of collectors there's another brand like Ming which is a Swiss brand but also has uh, roots in Asia they make pretty interesting watches with their own design language that are you know in that sub to three thousand dollar price point another one is a French brand called Baltic they release watches typically that are under a thousand dollars and are inspired design wise by watches 
watches of the 60s and 1970s. And um, they make really great stuff. I think a lot of people are embracing them. And you have your collection. How big is it right now? My personal collection, I think, is like fairly focused. I'm not sure what type of quantities we're talking about. It's a lot more than my wife would like. But, <laughs> um, you know, I collect things, I think, with stories. I'm like a nostalgic person. So things that have a personal attachment to me, you know, or an interesting story behind them are the type of watches that I tend to collect for myself. And do you have a favorite? I would say it's kind of a mundane watch, but one of the treasures that I own is a Air King, a Rolex Air King. This was my first new Rolex. And when I was facing my financial calamity in Armageddon, like I had mentioned earlier, I sold the watch on eBay. And 10 years after the fact, I was feeling very nostalgic because I found a laptop that I'd used in college that I turned on and I was looking through my old emails and found a chain of emails from when I sold this watch. And I had reached out to the guy that bought it and tried to buy it back just because, you know, it was my first watch. And the guy had given it to his brother who had kept it all these years. And I sent an email to him saying that, you know, I became a watch dealer now. This is the one that got away. I was really remorseful about it. I would really like to buy it back. <laughs> and um, the first email he sent me was, oh, yes, I still have the watch, but it means a lot to me too. That's what he said. Long story short, I eventually did get it back. I paid what I consider a world record price for a um, <laughs> stainless steel Air King that cost me originally. I still remember the price. It was $25.25 was the original retail price when I bought it. But I actually, I traded for a brand new stainless steel Daytona. So I'm pretty sure it was a world record price. And that is like a really special watch to me that you know, I'll keep and give to my son when he when he becomes an adult. What a journey that watch took. I'm uh, I'm yep. impressed that you are a sentimental sort. Yes, Clearly. I am. Any final thoughts on, you know, the secondhand market? I mean, do you feel like it's peaked? Are we going to see more highs in 23? Or do you feel like it's just going to be steady? I mean, I think uh, as businesses speaking, like, I mean, people are interested in watches. There's more and more people getting interested in their watches on a daily basis. And I think that the market will continue. Like, certainly there's corrections along the way like there always is but it doesn't mean that that market is dying or that there's less people interested. It's just, uh, you know, we got carried away with pricing, you know. I, I think the market is very healthy and robust and it will continue to grow. Okay, yes. great. Hope springs eternal. Thank you so much, Eric. I think the watch listening will uh, be thrilled to hear your thoughts on, on all of this and just the, the anecdotes about your own personal experiences. So thank you. Thank you for sharing, especially, uh, well, it's busy times for everyone. So we appreciate your time. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 